So if you can think of it like a chain reaction, so one infects two, two infect four, four infect eight, eight infect 16, and so forth. Um, and, and the more uh, uh, people that you have infected, the more likely that you're going to have it spread. Hello, and welcome to the Arabian Business Podcast, where we talk about the headlines of the world and other issues that impact you, our listener. My name is Bernte Boosman, and I'm Chief Reporter at Arabian Business. You just heard from Dr. Wael Farouk Mohammed El Amin, a consultant clinical microbiologist and infection control doctor at King's College Hospital in Dubai. As you've probably guessed by now, in this edition of the podcast, we'll be discussing what has rapidly shaped up to be one of the biggest stories of 2020 so far, the coronavirus epidemic. As we record this podcast on Monday, March 2nd, there have been approximately 89,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the world, with deaths standing at over 3,000. In this region, there have been 978 confirmed cases in Iran, including at least 54 deaths, as well as 47 cases in Bahrain, 46 in Kuwait, and 21 here in the UAE, forcing countries to cancel flights and step up other efforts to contain the virus. I'm here with Dr. Well in the AB Podcast Studio to learn more. Well, doctor, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming in on such short notice. Thank you very much for having me in today. Um, well, like I said, um, I just we have a, a few questions. I think it would be good for for our, our readers and our listeners to understand. Um, I guess the the first one, the primary one, is you know why why does the coronavirus seem to be spreading? Uh, you know, in places in Italy, Iran, uh, even as China seems to be getting more of a, a better grip on what's happening in China. We're seeing new outbreaks in other places. Why is that? So it's it's an interesting question when you think of it. I mean, the only way I could describe it, it's like a ripple effect where you have a focus and then things start spreading around, like when you throw a, a, a rock to the pond. So you have a ripple. You have um, um, distant areas where you can see a slightly fainter line of the ripple than closer to the center. And it's the exact same thing. So this outbreak started initially in Wuhan, China. And then um, um, with the efforts that the Chinese government was trying to put, another ripple starts somewhere else. Usually what you need is one person who spreads it to another person. So at the moment we have an estimated what we call the R0 or R0 of about two. So one person infects two more. So if you can think of it like a chain reaction, so one infects two, two infect four, or infect eight, eight infect 16, and so forth. Um, and, and the more uh, uh, people that you have infected, the more likely that you're going to have it spread. So if you have one patient who's been in contact with another that has flown to, let's assume, Italy, or actually even a better example would be the patient that was uh, in Singapore that went to France, that gave it to about 16 people between France and the UK, although he was asymptomatic. Um, himself. So again, that's something else that we have to take into consideration is how many people are carrying the virus without actually portraying any symptoms and hence being able to uh, uh, evade the protection lines that have been put in place like airport temperature monitoring. Um, at the moment, uh, there's definite evidence of that happening. Uh, the exact number isn't known. And is it, is it clear yet I mean, is it fair to say that the majority of people that have been infected with coronavirus are asymptomatic or and is, is there a percentage there that's so I think determined? That's, uh, so what we have is 83,000 or so at the moment, today's count, uh, confirmed infected patients. 
if you'd like to classify them to mild, moderate, and severe, the great majority of those infected would fall within the mild to moderate um, sort of category. While a, a small proportion, I think it's around, um, and I'll have to check the exact data, 4% are those who have the severe infection. And of those 4%, at the moment, the calculated mortality is about 2%, which is basically the number of people who have unfortunately passed is about 2%. But uh, there's a caveat to that is these are the diagnosed. So these are the people who presented to a hospital and had a diagnosis made. So the real question is how many undiagnosed people do we have in the background? Interesting. And, you know, you mentioned that so far there's been, uh, you know, over 2,700 fatalities, unfortunately. But are those fatalities tied to, to other illnesses or other conditions, for example, is it more likely to become a fatality as a result of age or as a result of uh, lifestyle choices, smoking, for example, um, as a result of other pre-existing conditions? Does, do, all, do those things combine to make some people more likely to succumb to the severe uh, symptoms of this and possibly death? So we have to re always remember that statistics is a very dangerous tool and it's how you present your data. Um, so the case fatality rate, um, as defined as how many cases died. And then the next question would be if they didn't have this infection, would they've died anyway, basically to rephrase your question. Um, so what we would attribute as, as the fatality when they do their calculations, and this is still very early because we don't have a lot of data coming from China in terms they have, they're, they're very, there's a lot of data coming up, but the details and the devil lies in details as to how many of these people were already had a pre-morbid condition that would have led to their uh, uh, um, uh, expiry anyway without the added or super added infection. I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think many people would. But at the moment, the attributable fatality case fatality rate is the 2%, which is very likely to change in the coming weeks and months. Interesting. And in, ter in terms of, of government responses around the world, um, do you think that they've been been adequate as things stand now? And, and do any countries stand out as being particularly effective? For example, I've seen that uh, people have praised Singapore, for example, as, as being very proactive in terms of combating this virus. Um, but in terms of the steps that have been, have been taken, do you think that's been enough to kind of mitigate the impact so far? Um, again, it's um, um, praising Singapore is probably because of their previous impact experience with the SARS in 2003. So they have been through this before. Um, other um, uh, localities and countries are probably naive in terms of when we say naive is they've never had this sort of exposure. Um, whether the, the, there's no absolute right and absolute wrong with these things. Um, we're learning as we go. There are different countries doing different things. Um, and if you look at the public health policies for each um, sort of um, uh, country or, or, or region, so the EU is slightly different to the UK, uh, which is slightly different uh, to the local um, public health advice at the moment. And they're all tailored towards their own population and their own needs. And as you can imagine, the needs for countries like Ethiopia would be very different to the needs of and the available resources. Um, would be very different to those in, in Europe. Um, the, the, the concept is similar. You have a positive patient, isolate them and prevent them from uh, causing more infection. So that's the basic 
uh, sort of concept that each and every one's trying to follow. Whether they do that at individual numbers, then if you have more than individuals, then you start cohorting, which is basically get everyone together with an infection in one place, which is what the Chinese tried to do initially by building the extra hospitals. Then if that doesn't work, the Chinese tried to um, uh, uh, quarantine whole towns and municipalities. Then it's moved a little bit more towards borders being shut between countries where there are differing opinions about that, whether it's the right or the wrong thing to do. And as I said, there's no absolute right and there's no absolute wrong, um, in particular with how things move at the moment. So you have a lot of human migration pathways. You have a lot of movement day to day between airports, between cities, and it affects. So the question is, one may always ask is, um, how would this affect? I mean, how many other people would die because of the uh, because of these um, uh, measures? Because um, there's always an effect. So if you think about movement of food, for instance, it's all linked. There's a lot of, I don't know, I think onions um, imported to different countries from places like China as well, and vice versa. There's countries exporting their food products to China. Um, so how many people are, are drugs? Drugs is another good example. So medicines with this just-in-time sort of policy that a lot of people are following with stocks kept to the bare minimum to save uh, in, in money supply storage. Um, is, it, is it going to affect? Uh, my answer is I don't know, um, but it may. And how would that affect populations if you need an essential medicine or if you need an infrastructure? Is that going to have a bigger effect? Is it going to be more than the 2% that we have at the moment? Is it going to be less? Um, so it, it's not a straightforward answer. The UK, for instance, um, initially shut down uh, air links with China. Uh, very early on, British Airways stopped, but they haven't done the same with Italy, despite it being... Uh, so again, I think it's based on um, other factors, and as, as the more they learn, um, the more they sort of adapt to, to the current situation. So it's an adaptive... Interesting. So for example, you know, recently this week, we've seen even in the GCC, for example, um, flights canceled for several days between different locations between, um, you know, Iran and, and other locations in, in, the, in this part of the world. Um, do you think that, so in other words, that's something that we, we might see more of as we learn more about what's happening in terms of um, flight cancellations, for example? Uh, so at the moment, as I said, there's um, a, a, an understandable level of anxiety and panic um, in terms of how this affects economies, how it affects your, it overstretches your healthcare um, provisions and, and capacity. Um, so there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of um, uh, thought um, happening at the moment, what do we do? What's the right thing to do? Um, would shutting borders be the right thing? Um, we may see a bit more of it and people might actually come back and say, you know what, it's not working. We need to think differently. Uh, maybe we need quicker and more rapid diagnostics. Maybe we need to be able to identify them more because uh, at the moment the test we have um, um, is what we call a non-validated test where it came to the market and we immediately used it without knowing um, how many cases it would detect correctly and how many cases it would detect incorrectly and how many cases it would miss um, uh, incorrectly. And I think it's been in the media that the, uh, uh, the late uh, doctor that's um, identified the virus in, in Wuhan uh, was tested negative on a couple of occasions. Um, but we are getting more data in terms of, of the test itself. There are more tests coming. 
um, looking at who's been previously infected. We call them serology tests. So they look at past infection rather than current infection. And there's more tests coming to the market at the moment being developed. Um, and um, one one question I had, and you, you you touched upon this, but how much of a challenge is posed by the fact that countries are differently equipped and able to handle or prepared to handle these sorts of events? Because of course, the health system in the UAE or in Italy or the UK is very different from, say, the health system in you know parts of Central Asia, for example, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, how much sharing of, of knowledge and, and preparation has to happen behind the scenes between health authorities in different countries to kind of overcome that challenge? So the World Health Organization works hard to coordinate this. But unfortunately, like you've, you've said, the world is more interconnected, um, um, however, uh, unfairly so. So uh, if I were to uh, um, fall ill in a country like Sudan or Chad, what's the probability of me being diagnosed? I'd say it's a lot less than uh, um, if I were in another uh, more developed country. But um, how would that affect me in the developed country from not getting it? Because you have people trying traveling to and from these countries here to do business or, or elsewhere. Uh, so we have to look at the bigger picture here. Equality is really important and understanding that actually what happens in, in, in Botswana or might affect you directly. It's exactly Wuhan um, wouldn't have been in the minds of many of us as being a cause of an of infection for me today. I mean, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, a lot of us wouldn't even know her. Uh, Wuhan sits in the map. Um, yeah. And it's, it could be the same with in the 2013-14, we had the Ebola epidemic uh, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, which was contained, um, but it, it did spread and it did cause a lot of death. It caused about 20,000 deaths. But the uh, universal response was um, uh, very um, effective in terms of containing it at the time. And I think we should be thinking towards the future. What's next is the real question. Um, this is not the last um, outbreak that we're going to see and um, trying to predict what's next is not easy. So the question is, well, how, how do we all work together understanding that actually we can't work in insular um, societies? It, what, what happens in the US affects what happens in, in Peru or Bolivia or... And looking at history is quite interesting is if you look at historically, it's always been epidemics that change history. Um, so you, you end up with something like syphilis, um, old world to the new world, or you end up with malaria going from the old world to the new world, or you end up with, uh, uh people. And it's always been the same. Um, people meet people with infection. You meet in a population that's not previously encountered this infection. And then you end up with a lot of death. Um, of if you think about Mexico and the, and, and the, uh, and the Spanish invasion of Mexico, the, the, they had the, the diarrhea with, with, uh, with, with uh, E. coli that led to the loss of, of, the, of the Spanish sort of invaders because they were not exposed of um, course, yeah. uh, to that bug. That, that, that brings me to, a, to another interesting question I had. Um, you know, like you said, th these things have happened periodically through history, mm -hmm. um, including, you know, very significant ones. For example, the Spanish flu after the First World mm -hmm. War which had a huge impact around the world. Um, but I mean, are, are these sorts of outbreaks and uh, epidemics, is it 
inevitable? Is that just a, a part of human existence, essentially? I mean, it's happened for so long. I mean, if you go back to the Middle Ages or ancient times, I mean... The... Even longer, even even if you go to a biblical text, um, you'd find that the plague's been um, mentioned extensively. In in uh, so, so historically, biblical texts, and if you look at, at, um, at um, um, representation in in um, in 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 Egyptian uh, records, you'd find a lot of a lot of um, writing um, about about uh, groups of people dying uh, with with what is probably an infectious cause. Um, and uh, you see, the problem is we over the last one hundred and fifty years, and at the pace that we have sort of evolved or or or. Um, uh, increase the rate of our evolution. We we forget that we've been in this planet for about uh, hundreds of millions of years, at least uh, in our current shape and form. Um, and 150 years in the scale of things is not big. So viruses have been there longer. Um, bacteria have been there longer than we have, and um, they have not evolved in a way uh, to. I mean, and they haven't changed the way uh, they live, like we have. Um, so we've changed the way we build, the way we've changed the way our communal buildings or communal living, and hence we will be exposed to new risks, but they will still be there. Um, yes, we have attenuated a lot of it with uh, the introduction of antibiotics, of, of, um, of uh, what we may call clean living uh, in, in terms of sanitation, improved sanitation over the last 250, 300 years. And that in itself has reduced um, the uh, level of exposure that we have to these um, sort of uh, um, parasites or bugs. Um, however, they exist and our immune system takes a lot longer to evolve than than uh, than just this moving. So yes, once we get exposed, uh, we are more than likely to suffer and these um, organisms will be, are, we know they're transmissible. Um, and the more we fight them, um, we, we may have less um, attacks, but we will have them. And it's, it's inevitable for, for the foreseeable future. Hi again. Just taking a quick pause to remind our listeners that this story is rapidly developing on a daily, almost hour by hour basis. So please make sure to go to arabianbusiness.com for the latest updates. In the second half of this podcast, Dr. Weil explains the term pandemic, the economic impact of the virus, the use of masks, whether such outbreaks are inevitable, and importantly, whether or not we should all be panicking. Here's a sneak peek of what's ahead. Just be reasonable. Um, it's inevitable that we live at risk. Risk is something that is uh, relative. And there are maybe um, bigger risks to you as an individual based on your own sort of work. And let's jump right back into it. Recently, the World Health Organization said that it's still too early to call it a pandemic. Uh, could you help us understand what exactly that term means and at what point that threshold is crossed between what's happening now and when it's officially a pandemic? Okay, so I think um, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, um, so this is a historical sort of... Um, there, there are reasons apart from the definition of the word, um, what, whether you call it um, epidemic, um, so outbreak or an epidemic or a pandemic, uh, one of each levels. The reason why it hasn't been called a pandemic yet is because of the 2009 H1N1, also known as the swine flu. Uh, there are scientists predominantly were critical of the WHO in calling it a pandemic, uh, possibly early on, and hence they've decided to uh, 
um, hold off from calling it at this time. So the definition of a pandemic is when you have multiple outbreaks in different regions. Um, there isn't a particular number to say 100, 200, 300 um, to, that fulfill this criteria. So it's only decided by the World Health Organization as per charter. Um, so individual Korean countries or, or groups cannot call this a pandemic unless it's um, um, because of legal and, and definition causes and the effect that it would have, because that would mean redirecting country resources via the United Nations to fight and combat. So it becomes a priority, um, as it is at the moment, it certainly is a priority. Of course. Uh, but yeah. the definition itself carries legal implications for the United Nations, is my understanding. Interesting, I see. In terms of the response and what is... is In terms is, of the response and prioritizations. And, um, you know, just before we were recording the podcast, you and I spoke a bit about the economic impact of, of the coronavirus. Um, but I'm curious, in terms of the, of the health industry, I mean, just from your observations, I mean, what, what sort of impact do you think it'll have? Because, for example, the sale of, of masks that has become quite common, um, you know, the prices of a mask that you buy online have really spiked in the last month, mm. I would say. I mean, is it... I mean, is the resources that are now being um, directed at this issue, I mean, is that beneficial to the wider health sector or is it kind of reactive? Or So with these type of um, outbreaks, the risk is what it does, it overwhelms healthcare systems. So if you have a, a bed capacity per country, assuming let's just say country X has um, 5,000 beds available, of which usually you'd have 60% occupancy from normal reasons, people being seen for other reasons, hypertension, diabetes, infections of one sort or other. So the background occupancy still exists. But then you have people knocking at your doors in hospitals who are either unwell or require investigations. So you have to put them in rooms. So then you lose your capacity. Then you end up with overflow. Then you have the problems are your staff members um, might go off sick because they, they are part of the population. People tend to forget that we in hospitals are also part of the population. So then you have stress and overwhelming on your staff members to care because hospitals are designed for a certain amount of capacity. So, you know, when you design a hospital, you assume you're going to have 70 to 80% capacity or so forth. And if you go above that, then uh, it, it, it requires more resources. Um, and that in itself would mean that down the line, then you need more masks, then you need more sanitization, then you need more consumables, then you need, how is that going to affect your operating theaters, for instance, because you need your doctors not to be operating them, you need them to be as part of your uh, front end staff um, dealing with the cases. So it has a downstream effect as well. And then you end up with what's happening at the moment, which is um, uh, this, you see, the worst thing that I think could happen is, is, um, is anxiety and and fear um which is it, and it's really important to have a a logical approach to all of this and a, a safe approach uh this mask buying a lot of people don't understand that masks these you can't just buy a mask and use it because these masks need to be what we call fit tested does the mask fit your face and to do that there's a process it it means that you have to wear a hood then we spray a chemical to see if the key can if the chemical bypasses the mask, then we tell you this is the right mask size for I you. See. What happened is there's been a lot of panic buying. There's a massive shortage for us in healthcare uh, organizations um, trying to find the right masks for our staff who are more likely to be exposed 
um, to these viruses. Um, and the real question is, what's the evidence for masks preventing uh, you getting an infection? It's an interesting, there's a very interesting paper. It's a proper design, what we call randomized controlled trial uh, in the USA, published in the Journal of Medical, American Medical Association in 2019, comparing just the standard surgical mask to the N95 or FFP3 mask. And the findings were interestingly exactly the same in prevention of influenza. And influenza is a similar virus. It's transmitted in what we think a very similar way. So it's droplet transmission. The N95 prevented the spread by around eight. No, sorry, the N90, the surgical mask prevented the spread by about 8%, while the N95 mask was prevented it by 7.2%. Statistically, wow. there wasn't much of a difference. Yeah. I think they had 2,500 people randomized, 1,250 for this, given the surgical masks with confirmed influenza cases, and the other 1,250 were with confirmed influenza cases, but different types of masks. Just a simple, cheap surgical mask versus the expensive, more robust N95 mask, but there was no difference. And there have been studies in 2008 and 2009 actually comparing or looking at the effectiveness of masks um, at, at preventing um, transmission. So uh, again, that this doesn't mean that they do or don't. I can't say they do or they don't. It's just common sense. Yes, if you have a, if you have a, if you have a seatbelt, you don't need a, a designed experiment to go and, and say, yes, it's probably going to be helpful that a seatbelt seat reduce uh, mortality because it makes sense. Or a parachute jumping over an airplane is probably a better idea than jumping without one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you, if you have access to masks, yes, by all means, um, if it makes, even if it just makes you feel comfortable mentally, but what it shouldn't allow is give you a false uh, uh, confidence in that actually it's much more important to get the basics right. And the basics is if someone's symptomatic and you don't need to be with them, stay away. If uh, you touch something, you don't know who's touched it before you, please wash your hands or use an alcohol gel and stay fit and stay healthy. And I think these are much more important than the, uh, than the uh, reassurance that might not be actually valid by just putting on a mask and fiddling around it with your own hands because chances are you're going to uh, inoculate yourself with something or other. And what, what about um, cr crowds and, uh, you know, avoiding large crowds? Is that something you, you recommend to people? Because I think, uh, like we've discussed before, that just sounds like kind of common sense that the, if you're around more people, there's obviously more chance to be infected with something, not necessarily coronavirus, but, you know. And this is the basic um, of um, management of, of epidemics at the moment. So if you think of the football match that was just cancelled a few days ago in Italy, it's the same sort of, if you have a big congregation of people, you're more likely to get infected. Or if you think of what happened in Iran, the thought process, or at the moment the theory is, uh, it's because of pilgrimage to uh, Qom. Yep. Uh, and pilgrimage is a place where lots of people congregate. So spread and touch and distances um, are very important. Um, at the moment, with these droplet precautions, we say one meter is relatively safe, um, but um, even that is not yet confirmed. So trying to keep a meter between you and the other person is always a good idea. Um, and but but again, if it's not necessary in times of you see uh, in times like these to be in a, a congregation, um, that it, I think it's again just like the parachute argument. It makes sense. If you don't have to be there, 
um, then please don't be there. And, you know, in, in terms of, of timeline of how long these things these things last, I mean, I know it's still kind of early days, but you know, how long do you foresee until, you know, this is brought under more control than it is today? I mean, is this a matter of months, of weeks, uh, longer? It's a very difficult question to answer. Um, with certain pathogens, um, they appear, they disappear, and they appear again. Ebola is a great example of that. So you have a surge, five, six years, you never hear about it, and then you have another surge. With others, like influenza, it just becomes part of the normal um, sort of uh, life. It's it's ongoing every single year. There's an epidemic. There's uh, tens of millions of people infected with tens of thousands of people dying. And the whole point of this current exercise is to prevent this virus becoming like influenza, where it just becomes a part of our current uh, um, pathogens that, that are circulating. It's got all the criteria to become one. Um, like other respiratory viruses, because it's how it's transmitted, and that we have a what we call a naive, immune naive population that hasn't been exposed. Um, but it might also disappear depending on how it evolves itself. Because if you're exposed, then and you uh, and you recover, then you got antibodies. So the probability is you will not be infected by the same strain of the virus again. And if we reach a threshold of about 80% of people who are immune, whether by natural immunity or by vaccination, then these types of viruses disappear. Interesting. And it's what happened with uh, smallpox by vaccination. It's what we did with polio. It's what we were trying to get done with measles. So you vaccinate a population where you tend, if you reach an 80% threshold, you probably will not see this virus because it doesn't have more susceptible hosts to jump to. So really, um, it may, in a way, um, lead, you know, lead to its own demise by infecting more people, unless it, the virus itself evolves to a different sort of, you know, diverges to something else that is still adapted to human infections, it might just disappear. And, you know, it, it, earlier you said that these sorts of outbreaks are inevitable. It's just a, a part of, of existence on, on Earth. At the moment, though, I mean, is it, from a response side, are we always playing catch up to the disease or or do you think it more could be done in terms of um, funding prevention and preventative measures uh, than it? Because at the moment, from an outsider's perspective, I'm, I'm not a doctor, obviously, mm -hmm. it, it it seems that, you know, much of the resourcing is responsive rather than preventive. I mean, we're we're fixing the the the, sim the the symptoms and the disease rather than the causes and the root causes of them. So um, over the last 50 or 60 years, healthcare has uh, become dichotomous in that you have first world medicine and third world medicine, where we have what we call neglected diseases because uh, they tend to occur in poor places. And it happened to be over the last 50, 60 years, poor people stayed at their own places. Um, so they had to uh, 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 deal with their own problems. So they've we've always had tuberculosis. It's never disappeared from most countries that are of low income countries. We've always we had the HIV epidemic of the nineteen eighties, which was interesting in that it still persists in Africa while it's declined in more developed countries because of the treatment and the uh, um, preventive and preventive. Uh, then you had the Ebola outbreaks. You've got the malaria. But they were always geographically sort of insular. And hence, the richer countries or the people with resources 
weren't as interested in in investing until the Gates Foundation started um, uh, looking into these sort of um, um, diseases with with a lot of investment and uh, because the world is becoming smaller. I, I myself, I'm a Sudanese national. I worked and trained in the UK. I've lived in Germany for a couple of years, lived in Ireland, and here I am in Dubai now. I might be traveling to Thailand tomorrow, Vietnam the day after, back to visit my family in Sudan a couple of weeks later. And I'm not um, in any way different to many people. I think that's very common these days. You know, people are from one place, they live in another place, they work in another place, they travel here back and forth. Correct. With exposures. So the bugs move with us. Whether, I mean, if you think of your, I don't know, you, you're buying an antelope, you know, cantaloupe or you're buying mangoes from India or, I mean, they carry bugs with them. Yeah. They, they, and it's not only for humans. If you look at the risks of, for uh, livestock, for plants, for vegetations, for vegetables, there's so much movement that um, it's affecting all of these um, pathways. And I think we need to start working and thinking globally as, as actually... Um, dengue virus or Zika virus was a very interesting example because the mosquito uh, um, moved. So the mosquito, we have dengue in parts of the Middle East. We have dengue in India. We have dengue in Africa. We have dengue in Latin America. If you think of uh, 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 of uh, encephalitis, of of um, of, um, of uh, the mosquito-borne encephalitis, so it's predominantly in you have it in in um, in the USA, but it's 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 West Nile viral. The name of it is West Nile, yeah. um, and it's it's affected. It starts goes to the birds, and the birds are moving. So you, we ha- the more we learn, the more we learn that we have to work together. What happens in in Botswana might affect someone in Alaska tomorrow. Interesting. And my my last question, then I guess is, this is kind of the question that's you know in the tip of everyone's mind is, you know, how worried should we be? Because obviously now there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of panic about what's happening. But I mean, do you think that anxiety and is is warranted given the scope of what's happening, or are we not at a stage yet where you you think this is? I think the real question is what can we do about it. So what what would how would your anxiety help you? Um, and what, what sort of protective uh, things can you do to prevent yourself from getting this infection? You can insulate yourself in a room, but even that might not be uh, working because we had the outbreak in Singapore in 2003 because it was in a building, hotel building. Everyone was in their own room and it went through the ventilation systems. And then we learned the ventilation system could transmit these viruses. Um, or you can go on and do your own job and just be reasonable. Um, it's inevitable that we live at risk. Risk is something that is uh, relative. And there are maybe um, bigger risks to you as an individual based on your own sort of work. If you work, I don't know, if you're working in the army, you've probably got a higher risk of, of, of being injured um, than if you're sedentary on a desk. And I think we have to assess our risks independently and individually. Um, so if you're going to be exposed, the likelihood of this virus is probably healthcare workers would be more exposed, but healthcare workers, it's their day-to-day living. If it's not this virus, it could be anything else. It's what we signed up for. Um, but for the general population, I think, um, the only advice I would say is just, um, stay calm and, 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 and carry on. Um, it, 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 because it's really important. We need, we need our, we need our porters. We need our cleaners. We need our office workers. We need our delivery people. We, for the whole, uh, otherwise everything halts. Perfect. 
Well, uh, well, thank you, doctor. That's all the questions I have. I really appreciate you coming in to, to help uh, teach us about what's going on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. For our listeners, as I said earlier, this is a story that is developing almost by the hour. So please make sure you're signed up for the Arabian Business Newsletter and make sure to keep checking arabianbusiness.com for updates. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and stay tuned for more episodes beginning next week. I'm Bernd Busman, and thank you for listening. Thank you.